All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word of God. We can't imagine what life would be like if you had not spoken. What if we had to go through life wondering, is there a God? Has he revealed himself? What am I here for? What is this all about? What's the future? What's beyond death? All these questions that would linger with us are answered by you. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for giving us a trustworthy revelation held by your Holy Spirit in truth, in infallibility, in inerrancy, free from human corruption. And so we praise you this morning for a word that you have spoken, even difficult words, challenging words, complicated words, unclear words, like ones that we are considering this morning. The clarity is not your fault. The clarity, the lack of clarity, I should say, it's sometimes our fault. We can't understand everything. We're fallible. So we pray that you would help us this morning, Spirit of Truth, that you would guide us into all truth and protect me from error and do good to our souls this morning as we gather together to hear your word, to consider your word, and to be changed by your word. May your testimonies be our delight in these moments together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bertrand Russell was an atheistic philosopher, well-known, probably heard that name before, and he lived uh, from 1872 to 1970. And during his lifetime, he wrote more than 100 books. One of his best known was written in 1927 called Why I Am Not a Christian. Organized religion of what he called unenlightened barbarism, founded upon lofty superstitions with no real roots in any kind of reality. On one occasion when Russell was asked what he would say to God if he found himself standing before him, which he did in 1970, he responded while he was on earth, Sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Well, the Apostle John would disagree with Mr. Russell this morning on this issue of evidence because in our text, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, he provides no less than five proofs, five testimonies to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. And think about it. John, as an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the very best friend of Jesus on the earth, and the last living apostle, would seem to be the most credible witness we could ever ask for. And he writes to us this morning about the identity, the true identity of his Savior and Lord and friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're not just limited to John's testimony. John provides us with five, or I should say four, other sources, including his own, of evidence to the true identity of Jesus. And we're going to get to those momentarily. But first of all, I want to talk about the content of the testimony. The content of the testimony. What is it that God is claiming to be true? Well, look at chapter 5 and verse 11. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11. In it, we read the content of the testimony. As John writes, and this is the testimony 
This is what we're witnessing to. This is what we're claiming is true. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. That's testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. What an amazing statement. Think about that. I want you to think about this with me this morning. God gave something. God exists. And he gave us something. What did he give us? Eternal life. Eternal life. Now, before talking about what eternal life is, just pause to consider this. Eternal life is a gift. Eternal life is a gift that's given in this season of Christmas as we come into Advent. This is one of the most wonderful things we can think about. What has God given us? We're going to consider some of those things next week, Lord willing. But for right now, consider this. God has given eternal life, which means eternal life is not earned. You do not have to finance your redemption. It is given, paid in full, by God himself. God has given us eternal life. It's not that God looks out on the world and he says, well, I think she's worthy of eternal life or he's worthy of eternal life and so she's done a lot of good things and she'll be worthy of eternal life and he's done a lot of good No! God doesn't give us something that we have earned. He gives us something out of his own mercy, out of his grace, Eternal life, it's a gift received, it's not a prize that's earned. But notice, God has given us eternal life and this life is located somewhere. It's not just given to us apart from something else. We don't have eternal life. But there's someone who is and does, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is called in this very letter. 1 John chapter 5, look, verse 18, we'll get here next week, Lord willing. Or actually, verse 20. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John says it at the end of the letter. He also says it at the beginning of the letter. Look at 1 John chapter 1, very beginning of the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched. Verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to us and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So when John says eternal life, he's thinking about a person first. Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is the one who has always lived, will always live. He's the Son of God. And John is telling us that if we want eternal life that God has given, it's going to have to come through his Son, We have to be connected to eternal life. We have to be in union with the one who is eternal life. John is telling us that the life, the eternal life, the life of the age to come, the life of the new heavens and the new earth is in Jesus Christ. It is in faith union with him. It only comes when we have united, or rather been united, to Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. That's why we can't reject the claims of Christ and have eternal life because we're rejecting the one in whom is life. 
That's why John is marshalling these testimonies about who Christ is. That's why John is laboring in this letter to beg these Christians not to depart to a false Christ. Because if they do, they will find a Christ that is not saving. Doctrine about Christ matters. Truth about Jesus matters. We can't reject the claims of Christ and have life because in him is life. And if we're going to participate, if we're going to share in that life, we have to be in him who is life. We must be trusting in, believing on, hoping in him and all that the scriptures say about him. So the question before us is how do we know? How do we know? How do we know that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son? That's the content of the testimony. But how do we know? Is there any confirmation that that's true? John's going to give us five confirmations that that's true. That the best news in all the universe that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son is not some pipe dream. It's true. It's confirmed in real historical reality. And he's going to give us those five this morning. So first of all, we're going to move on to point number two now and look at the confirmation of the testimony. This is where we'll be spending most of our time. We'll be talking about these five evidences or witnesses to the true identity of Jesus. And here's the first one, the testimony of the Son. Now we get to come to one of the hardest passages in the entire New Testament. Scholars debate this passage. It's very difficult. And I'm talking about 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. Let's read that verse together. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. What about water and blood? Now, some Bible teachers and preachers will tell you that that when you're, when you're preaching, you need to make sure that when you're preaching, just give the people the fruit of your study. Don't tell them how necessarily all that you got there and all the Greek words and what they mean and how you did all that. He said, that's like underwear. It's good for support, but nobody wants to see it. <laughs> well, I'm going to show you my underwear this morning. Don't quote that. Jeremy does video clips every single week of what I preach. Don't take that one. I'm going to show you my underwear this week. Get me fired. No, I'm going to show you how I got to the interpretation I have, which I'm going to submit very humbly and could be totally wrong. All right? This is a very difficult passage. But I'm going to give you some other, other ideas first, and then, then we'll take you to the underwear. Okay? All right, some people like Calvin and Luther, good brothers, good men, trusted Bible teachers, would say that the water and the blood refers to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Others have said that the water and the blood mainly refers to the birth of Christ, since moms, you know what happens when babies are born. Water and blood is involved. Others have said it's mainly about his death, because in John chapter 19, Verses 34 and 35, John records that when a Roman soldier stuffed a spear in the side of the, the, at that point, dead Jesus, what came out? Water and blood. Others have said, and this is probably the main interpretation among conservative scholars, that it refers to his baptism and his death. 
And they, they appeal to some historical theology here, things that are going on in the context of John's day that we're not necessarily privy to in the writing of 1 John. There was a false teacher at work, no doubt, that John knew named Serenthus. Serenthus was a false teacher who taught, was trying to teach Christians a different Christ. And they said that, or he said and taught, that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down upon him. We see that. That's true. And the Holy Spirit abided with Christ all the way through his earthly life. But when he died, the Holy Spirit left him. And so that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he says. Now, don't agree with that. It's not true. But that's, the, that's where these scholars would get this interpretation that when John is writing, this is he who came by water, that is baptism. This is he who came by blood, that is his death. And then when he says, not by water only, but also by water and the blood, meaning the Holy Spirit didn't depart from Jesus when he died. He was with him the whole time. Now, that could be the case. However, I want to put before you a slightly modified view of that last one. I don't disagree that I think the primary issue and view in the testimony of water and blood is his baptism and death. Although I don't particularly think it is the experience of Christ's baptism that's in view more as much as the ministry of his baptizing. Now let me explain why. There is a commentator, Colin Cruz, very conservative commentator, who offers this interesting nuance that I found to be compelling. He says, water refers not to the experience of Jesus' baptism only, but to his ministry of baptism. His reasoning is that all the uses of by water, the phrase by water that he uses in 1 John, if you go back to the gospel of John, all those are talking about the ministry of baptism, not the experience of baptism. Okay, so just for, for tell you, this is part of the underwear. Okay, so when you come up to, this is good for us all to know when we encounter difficult passages in the Bible, how do you resolve that? Well, the first thing you should do is not go to find out what other people say. The first thing you should try to do is do your own study. Look at the words. You can do this. You don't have to know Greek to do this. You need to find, you need to, first of all, within John, you say, does John use water anywhere else in this letter? Does John use blood anywhere else in this letter? We'll get the blood in a minute. He uses blood one other time. He never uses water except here. So that doesn't help us too much. So where do you go beyond that? Once you, if you, okay, look the letter, haven't found anything. Did John write anything else in the New Testament? The Gospel of John. So you go to the Gospel of John, and you look up that phrase, by water. And we're going to look at where it's used. It's in John chapter 1. So let's go back to John 1, and let's look at these. And I promise this is as technical as the sermon's going to get. After we get out of this one, it'll be smooth sailing, Lord willing. But I think this is a good point to pause and teach us how to engage our Bibles when we struggle to figure out what texts mean. John chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse 26. This is where, of course, this is referring to the, uh, John the Baptist and the, the, the baptism of Christ that John gave. Verse 26 of John chapter 1. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. So you could also translate, I baptize by water. It's the same Greek word. Now, is that referring to the experience of baptism or the ministry of baptism? Ministry of baptism. But that's not the only time he uses it. Look at verse 31. 
I myself did not know him, John says, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. I came baptizing with water or by water that he might be revealed to Israel. Then verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So lest we think that this, lim- this, this phrase, by water, is limited just to John's ministry, it's also applied to Jesus' ministry in the same chapter. Look at verse, or, uh, sorry, in two chapters over. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. Now this is referring to Jesus beginning his ministry of baptism. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. One more verse, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Then look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples he left Judea and departed again from Galilee. Now, I think that's pretty convincing that what John means when he talks about Jesus came by water is he came by a ministry of baptism. He came baptizing. Now, it, it's clear in John 4 that Jesus wasn't the one necessarily doing the baptism, but his ministry involved baptism. He was just having his disciples do it because he's a good teacher. He's training his followers how to do what he did. But if that's the case, then water would seem to be used. And I don't think, by the way, I think you have to pit experience of baptism and practice of baptism against each other. It can include both of them. I just wanted to add that little nuance there to say, I think that it's talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When John says he came by water, it just means he, he came at the beginning of his ministry, engaged in and as a recipient of baptism. John wants to emphasize and underscore the ministry of Jesus. But he does that for a purpose. And that is, he wants to emphasize that he came not just by water, not just baptizing or being baptized, but by blood, his death on the cross. Now, why do I say blood refers to Why does it not refer to birth? Why does it not refer to something else? Because of the way John uses it. Okay, so look back, 1 John chapter 1. The only other place that blood is used in the letter of John, the first letter of John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, how does the blood of Jesus cleanse us from all sin? It's got to be shed. How is it shed? On the cross. So when John thinks blood, I think he's primarily thinking about the death of Christ. So here's the point, saying all that. John wants us to understand, and the false teachers seem to agree, that Jesus came by a ministry of baptism. But what they did not appreciate is that he sacrificed his life as an atoning sacrifice to God on the cross. 
Because why do you think John labors in this letter in chapter 1 to talk about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from sin? In chapter 2 to talk about Christ being the propitiation for our sin? In chapter 3 talking about Christ coming to destroy the works of the devil by overcoming our sin on the cross. And in chapter 4 verse 10 talking about that God sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearing, atoning, sacrifice for our sin. Why does he emphasize that? Because false teachers weren't. It's really convenient to talk about Jesus and his ministry and his humanity and ignore the cross and all that the cross says about them and all that the cross says about us. And so John wants to emphasize he didn't just come as one who was baptized or baptizing. He came as one who died sacrificially. He came as one who laid his life down. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is why... Jesus received testimony to his true identity both at the beginning and the end of his ministry. In John chapter 1, verse 32 through 34, after John baptizes Jesus, he says to all who are there, this is the Son of God who has come into the world. And when he dies on the cross, what does the Roman soldier say in Matthew 27, 54? Truly, this man was the Son of God. So he gets that testimony at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. His death did not nullify the fact that he was the Son of God. It proved that he was the Son of God. Proved it. And so that's where we begin. That's the first evidence that he came by water and blood, that he, gave, that he came through a ministry and experience of baptism, and then died on the cross to atone for our sin. It's a historical reality. It happened. And that's the first evidence of testimony. Now, underwear back in the drawer. I'm not going to say underwear any more time in the sermon. That's getting really uncomfortable up here. Okay, so that's the testimony of the Son. Number two, what's the second confirmation we have? The testimony of the Spirit. Look again at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit is the one who testifies. For the Spirit is the truth. The next, the next witness that John puts forward to testify to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God is the Holy Spirit of God. This is, why the, this is in part why the Holy Spirit was sent to bear witness to the truth of Jesus. Would you look with me, hold your finger in 1 John, go back to John's gospel. Let's look at a few passages in John's gospel. First of all, John chapter 14, and we'll read verse 17. John 14, 17. Even, this is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when this helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. One more time, chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So we see here the role of the Spirit in testifying to the reality and truthfulness of Jesus. Remember, the Spirit was involved in Jesus' entire ministry. 
not just his ministry, but his whole life. This time of year, we celebrate his conception and his incarnation. How was that done? By the Holy Spirit of God. Matthew 1.18 and 20 and Luke 1.35. But remember, the Holy Spirit was with him at his baptism, coming down on him like a dove to anoint him for ministry. He was with him in his temptation in Mark chapter 1 and Luke 4. The Spirit, he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, and then he was comforted and strengthened by the Spirit on the back end of the temptation. And we see the Spirit is the one who is enabling and empowering everything that Jesus is doing in his ministry. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we read, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. How did the Son of God do good, heal, rescue people from the oppression of the devil? According to Acts 10, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit, for God was with him. I remember uh, uh, I had a roommate in college, and we, we would often read the Bible together and and. and and enjoy times of fellowship like that. And one morning, I can remember his Bible being opened as I went out into the kind of our main meeting room. And he had his Bible open, and we were young Christians at the time, and I can remember looking down, I think it was in Luke chapter 3, I could have the verse wrong. But he had underlined, it said something, it said, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And he underlined that part. He was talking about Jesus. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. And he put a little question mark out beside that. When I asked him about it, he said, that doesn't make any sense. How's the power? He's got the power of the Lord. He's the Lord. So how does the power of the Lord, we're young Christians wrestling with this, trying to struggle. How in the world does the Holy Spirit help the Son of God? Like, what is this? Why well, what we've come to understand later on by God's grace is that the Jesus, the God-man, needed the Holy Spirit because he's man, right? He's God, but he's man. And so it is the human nature of Jesus that's being empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to heal, to, 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 to free those who are oppressed by the devil, to do those good works that he did. And so it's no contradiction, but it's just the reality that Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. Now, why does John bring the Holy Spirit into discussion here? Well, he says in verse 7, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, remember, in the Bible, the biblical pattern to establish truth is two or three witnesses, right? Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, talks about the importance of having two or three witnesses to establish a truth claim. Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, regarding church discipline, there needs to be more than just one voice on that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says that every evidence must be established by two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5, 8, regarding accusations against elders, those things must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So over and over again, throughout the Bible, you see this pattern. In order for a truth claim to be established, it has to have two or three witnesses behind it. Well, Jesus has them. He has two or three. His three here, the Spirit, the water, and the blood all testify, and they all agree. That's it. Case closed. No more witnesses needed. He's going to give us three more. He's going to keep going forward. God gives us more evidence than we need, Mr. Russell. More evidence than you need. When we stand before God, 
Every single human being who ever lived will stand before God. No one will ever in his courtroom be able to say, I'm sorry, I didn't have evidence. No one. It will be overwhelming, and in that day, you wouldn't dare say it anyway because you'll know it's true and you're doomed. Now, what's the other three he gives? First of all, the testimony of men. Number three, the testimony of men. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Now, John could just be using this phrase, the testimony of men, just to refer to general things people say. He could be just saying, look, compared to God, the testimony of men is nothing. What God says is very important. That's absolutely true. But has there been testimony of men given in this letter regarding the truth claims of Jesus? Yes. John has been one of those men who has stood up and said, this is the Christ. Right in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, we have seen and testify that this is that God has sent his son into the world. In, at the beginning of the letter, we read these verses a little bit earlier, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, we have touched him, we have seen him, we've been with him, we've experienced him. We're telling you something that actually happened. And then this powerful verse that we considered several weeks ago, 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. He says, we are from God. Talking about the apostles and the Christians who are following them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. My goodness, what a bold claim. What a bold claim. In our day and age, that man's crazy. We need to get him some medical attention fast because he thinks he has the truth and he's pushing that on people. I need to go to my safe space because that's offensive. We are from God We are from God. And what we say is true. And whoever doesn't listen to us is because they're not from God. But if you do listen to us, it's because you're from God. I mean, we would think that's a cult leader. Sounds like a cult leader. Unless he knew Jesus. And unless he's telling the truth. And that's exactly what's happening. So we have the testimony of men also. We have the testimony of John the Apostle and the other apostles with him saying, this is who Christ is. Number four, the testimony of the Father. Look again at chapter 5, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So we have the testimony of of God. Now, what's the testimony of God about his son in 1 John? Well, let's look at a couple of verses. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Sorry, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. So God, God's given testimony. He says, this is my son. How do you know? I sent him. Verse 11, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Look at verse 15, chapter 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Why is that the case? Because that's what God has said about his Son. He says, here's the one I've sent. 
Here's the one I sent to die for you. Here's the one I sent out of my love for you. If you confess that he is the son of God, if you agree with me, you are of me. I'm in you, you're in me. Because that's God's testimony concerning his son. Remember the precious witness of the father at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration where God gets to pull the curtain back and really say what he wants to say about his son? I love that. I love it when we hear, we get to see, and, and, and wish, you could have, wish you could hear it with our ears. We'll hear it one day. But to be able to hear, this is my beloved son. This is him. Listen to him. Listen to him. I am well pleased with him. Listen to him. Now, if we don't agree with the father's testimony, look at what John says. This is a, this is a terrible thing. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. What a fearful thing. We have the testimony of the Son of God by water and blood. We have the testimony of the Spirit. We have the testimony of men. We have the testimony of God himself. And to all that, People will say, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You're a liar. You're calling God a liar. And that's a fearful thing. That is a fearful thing. Maybe you find yourself here this morning or you know of someone who is in this because they just don't believe it. They don't think that Jesus is real or true or whatever. A question you can ask is, a friend, cousin, brother, neighbor, co-worker, do you know all that God knows? Do you know all that God knows? Well, what has God said about Jesus? God has said he's his son. And if you wouldn't claim to know all that God knows, then why would you deny that the claim that the father makes about the son is not a true claim? Do you realize that if you deny the Father's claim and you deny the Spirit's claim and you deny the Son's claim and you deny the Apostle's claim that you're calling God a liar? Does he lie? God is not a man that he should lie nor the Son of Man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers twenty-three nineteen. God doesn't lie. So whose testimony is more reliable? The atheistic college professor who wants to sleep with his girlfriend? and grew up in a fundamentalist home and reject Christianity because that's what he thought it was? Or God? Be careful who you listen to. Young people, be careful who you listen to. They have an agenda for your life. They have a worldview they want you to adopt. They are evangelistic to the core. Secularism is the most aggressive evangelistic program going today. Sending missionaries all over the world. Everybody advocates for what they love. Everybody seeks to do what they want to do and get other people to endorse it. It is the way we operate. So don't think, well, that's just what Christians do. No, that's what everyone does. It's what everyone does. And the question is, whose testimony is more reliable? When you look at the fruit of people's lives... What testimony does that give about who they claim to follow? So, we've seen the first four. Testimony of the Son, testimony of the Spirit, testimony of men, testimony of the Father. One more, testimony of Christians. 
testimony of Christians. Look at the beginning of chapter, or chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. See, brothers and sisters, we have the testimony in us. I couldn't get you to not believe in Jesus if I put a gun to your head. No way. There's no way that I or anyone else could shake you off of the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know why? Because you have it in you. That testimony is in you, and it's not going to come out of you. I mean, be removed from you. Hopefully it comes out of our mouths a lot, but not going to be taken out of our hearts. Because you have accepted and internalized this truth by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus himself said in John 7, 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You know why people don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Because their will is not to do God's will. But it, your will is to do God's will. And therefore, you know that Jesus is. See, it's always a moral issue. It's not intellectual first. It's moral. If our will is to do God's will, Jesus says, we'll know that he's the Son of God. You can challenge your unbelieving friends in that regard. Would you do what the Bible says? Instead of arguing for it about why you won't do it, that's why you won't believe, Jesus says the reason you don't believe is because you won't do it. You get that? People will use that excuse all the time. Well, I don't believe, so I won't do it. It's an excuse. If you do believe, you will understand. Or I say, if you do, if you do, do it, you will believe. That's Jesus' logic. And we have that testimony within us. Look at a couple of verses. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. But you have seen, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So I don't need to preach this sermon to you. You know this. Chapter 2, verse 27. But the, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his testimony as anointing teaches you about everything. And is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. See, John says, I don't have to tell you Christians that Jesus is the Son of God. You know that. You know it because you have the testimony. You're anointed with the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And this we know, by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why? Because the Spirit testifies within us that he is the Son of God. Then chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. So all three members of the Trinity testify. The apostles testify. The best friend of Jesus testifies the one whom the Trinity has saved, all bear witness to the true identity of Jesus. Friend, what say you? What say you? Let's close with the consequence of the testimony. We're not playing academic games this morning. This is life and death. This is life and death. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, and with this we're going to conclude. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life.
So here's the fork in the road. To whom will we listen? The testimony of our culture regarding Jesus or the testimony of Scripture? Who truly has our best interest at heart? God or the world? Whose testimony is proven the most reliable? Who you choose to believe will literally cost you eternity. We cannot afford, friends, to get this wrong. Who is Jesus? Let me ask you this question this morning. Do you have the Son? That's what he says in 5 verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So what does it mean to have the Son? To have the Son. Well, when you have something, it does its thing for you. If you have a dollar, you will be able to buy a dollar's worth of stuff. If you have a cold, it makes your nose run. If you have a lawyer, he stands for you. Having something means it does whatever it's supposed to do for you. So what is the Jesus thing in 1 John? To atone for our sins and give us eternal life, to save us. So that's what it means to have the Son. That's why we need the Son. Listen, if you reject Jesus, what are you going to do with your sin? What are you going to do, friend? Is there an alternate atonement source out there? by which God can justly forgive you? You think he's just going to sweep it under the rug? You crazy fool! As someone might say on the streets, that's crazy! I knew Shanna would laugh. (laughs) That is ridiculous. We can't do that. That, There is not another, there is not another source out there for atonement, for salvation, than Christ alone. So I've been praying for some of you specifically this week, and I want this to be the day you settle it. I want you to come to Christ. Today's the day of salvation. You can understand this. 1 John 5, 12 is really simple. you got to have the Son. How do you have the Son? Romans 10, 9, and 10. Whoever confesses with his mouth, Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, will be saved. You won't be saved just sitting there and not telling anybody. Speak. Speak. Surely some of you have come to Christ this year, and you're waiting to talk. We got pastors in the back. We'll be up front. Grab us. Say, I want to become a Christian. I want to receive Christ. I want to pray this morning. Let's get this. Let's do it. Let's do that. Don't just sit there week after week after week wondering if this is true for you. It can be true. Confess it with your mouth. Go public. Go public. So let me conclude with this good encouragement. That if you have the Son, brothers and sisters, and those of you who want to get in on this, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. It's not just something you will have. It's something you have. Think about that. Right now, if you are in union with Jesus Christ, you are experiencing eternal life. Eternal life. It is a present possession. 
You have fellowship with the triune God and with all those who are in fellowship with the triune God. That is eternal life. And so the church is an outpost of heaven, the suburbs of glory, the foretaste of the fullness of eternal life. We are even now receiving a taste of what that eternal life is like as we worship this morning in the company of God's people. We will have more of it and we will have it without end in the new heavens and the new earth. But we are already now experiencing that life and death is not going to take it away. It is going to be an ushering in to the fullness of eternal life that we presently have. No better news in all the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to spend time in the word of God, to think about the most pressing and precious realities of the entire universe. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love that has sent the Son of God into the world to bear our sin. We thank you for answering our deepest needs and meeting our most profound and pervasive problems. We know that this life is difficult because of sin and the fall, but we thank you that in Christ we have life. We are in union with the one who is eternal life. And we thank you for the foretaste of that that we get to experience as your people, especially as we gather together like this morning in worship to you. Draw near to us by your spirit as we stand to respond to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.